Hello and welcome everybody to the Beyond Autism podcast series. Uh, we are today joined by Jalpa Shah, uh, BCBA, and um, she's here to talk us through her case study, which is which is teaching object imitation using a modified errorless teaching procedure. Um, before I introduce Jalpa, I just want to take you guys through the references which you'll be able to see online. Lots of references here. We've got the Cooper book, to, uh, second edition, 2007. Carbone et al. 2007, the role of the CMO during discrete trial instruction of children with autism from the Journal of Early and Intensive Behaviour Intervention. Uh, the Chase et al. 2020, a comparison of imitation training using concurrent versus delayed prompting from the behaviour analysis research and practice. Fentress and Lerman, uh, 2012, a comparison of two prompting procedures for teaching basic skills to children with autism from the research in autism spectrum disorders. Uh, Libby et al. 2008, a comparison of most to least and least to most prompting on the acquisition of solitary play skills from behaviour analysis and practice. McGreevy and Fry and Cornwell, 2005, Essential for Living, 2012, sorry, Essential for Living. And uh, Sura et al. 2003, an overview of imitation skills and autism implications for practice, the behaviour analyst today. Goodness, a long reference list. But this is why we chose your case study, Java, because obviously it's, it's a very well referenced and inspired by re research piece. So without any further ado, over to you, Java Shah, tell us who you are, where you came from, and uh, we'll begin. Um, hi, everyone. Um, I'm, as Andy's introduced, I'm Jalpa. Um, I am by qualification a behaviour analyst. Uh, my journey began back in India, where I studied um, masters in clinical psychology. I worked as a clinical psychologist for over a year in a special needs setting. Um, through the process, I realized that I was largely doing diagnosis and not as much intervention. And that kind of prompted me to research a little bit more about various intervention for learners on the spectrum and learners with additional needs. And I came to Bangor in 2010 to study my master's in ABA. And that kind of introduced me to the world of Skinner and Skinner's work. Um, I went on to uh, London into um, an ABA school as a trainee tutor and progressed through the years and got my qualification as a behavior analyst in 2014. Then on, I had the opportunity to work at a specialist VB clinic in Dubai. I worked there as an outreach consultant for two years. That was um, a very good experience, again, working in a different culture, um, using uh, different language as well, and adapting the ways of um, behavior analysis and be to teach different language, um, not necessarily English. And then life brought me back to UK in 2017, and I joined Beyond Autism there as a supervisor. Um, and that's pretty much my journey. Like genuinely international work, it's, it's, it's very cool. Okay, great, thanks for that, Jaffa. A little bit of context for everybody. Um, just to give us again our title, the Teaching Object Imitation Using Modified Errorless Teaching Procedure. So um, the case study's online for you guys to see, but we, we thought we would have a conversation about it, bring it to life. Um, do you just want to take us through the, the executive summary, just so that we can kind of get a picture of uh, the age of the child you're working with, maybe uh, mm -hmm. the reason why what you did was applied and so forth. Uh, yes, um, the learner was um, in key stage two and th this particular learner was nonverbal, but also using an AAC uh, to communicate his needs. Um, we had moved the learner on quite recently from uh, PEC's communication book onto the Proloco to go. Uh, we were establishing this communication system for him and one of the sort of prerequisites uh, for this communication system to be effective is to be able to match 
um, and to be able to imitate um, certain movements, for example, being able to point. And that's where the whole imitation and, you know, as we know, gen, um, across the board, imitation is one of our keys uh, learning to learn skills in order for learners to be able to not only imitate sounds, but also certain movements. And it forms sort of the base uh, of uh, being able to do independent skills uh, in daily routine. And that's how we came about teaching um, object imitation. One of the areas that we noticed for this particular learner was difficulty maintaining um, skills as they were being taught and difficulty with prompt fading. And that's where research began on identifying ways to prompt fade because we've read from Cooper, we've read from other research on prompt fading, but those strategies weren't quite being effective. Um, so I went in and read a little bit more and tried to look at using a different prompting style and came on this particular procedure where I used two different teaching procedures and almost kind of merged them and it did prove to be effective. So although there's no specific research that will say this entire process is um, effective, but I've used two previously proven if, uh, procedures and brought them together in this particular teaching procedure. It is interesting, uh, actually, I, just reading your case study again today before we, we spoke, I was, you know, you kind of forget to remember the type of learners or children that we, we tend to work with um, particularly in the independent sector where uh, more often than not is, is children that have many things that they need help with. So you talk about communication, you talk about the basic learning to learn skills and it just really struck struck me when I was reading it how if you can't imitate, I mean genu genuinely like the building blocks of learning are, are become very um, hard for you to access from a developmental point of view. So it's really, I mean uh, other people listening to this might be thinking, yeah, well, yeah, of course. But like, you know, just just to yeah. remember that it is such a big a big thing. So okay, you identified imita imitation skills as kind of being like the bed bedrock or the prerequisite skills that need to be taught. Um, and you identify obviously uh, that imitation skills are, are prioritised in early intervention programmes, right? I mean, yeah, it's very common, particularly in in primary age children, albeit this this young person was kind of eight, nine years old at the point at the point of his key stage two. So again, that's relatively late to the to the party, I suppose. Um, um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So you have a young man or young lady who has mm -hmm. difficulty with uh, fine motor skills, imitation, um, object imitation, presumably then that kind of extrapolates into kind of 2D issues, 2D identification and so on. With the augmented communication device, and it previously was PECS, was, was that successful as a communication? Was it functional for the learner? Or was this something that was an additional piece that you need to think about? So um, we, we moved on from uh, PECS largely uh, because of the difficulty with the physical use of the book. Um, as if for someone, you know, as people who've worked in the field, pecs, um, you know, you almost always end up losing some pecs. They need to be remade a multiple number of times. Um, the difficulty of flipping the pecs book and being able to uh, physically, you know, locate a particular item. It's not always placed in the right place, whereas the ProLoco allows for the sizes and, um, you know, the screen to be locked. Um, and that kind of was one of the reasons why the speech and language therapist, along with um, the parents, recommended the use of ProLoco because it allowed for discrimination to be worked on, for example. It allowed for a blank space to be placed next to the target item and kind of gradually build um, the discrimination and scanning. So moving from two to three and four and so on, which um, with PECS wasn't being quite successful. And over the years, we've continued to work with this learner on his use of PECS. And now, um, although discrimination continues to be um, a struggle, we have had more success with the use of PEC, uh, use of ProLoco. And we are now beginning to teach him to request locations using the ProLoco as well. Um, and I think 
although not entirely the most like not it doesn't meet all his needs but in a total communication approach it does offer him the opportunity to have his needs met across different settings yeah of course what do you mean by the total communication approach a total communication approach um, involves use of not necessarily only a single um, method of communication. So you have a primary method of communication, which for a learner could be, um, it could be verbal, a vocal response, uh, and a backup of sign or Makaton, um, BSL, Makaton signs, or another AAC device, which could be PEX, protocol, visual schedules, communication boards, choice boards. So it, it any and all means that will enable a learner to have his needs met, basically, to put it very simply. Mm. So, just to explore this more, because it, it, I'm reading the I'm reading the kind of the context of this young person and, and how you described him, and then you go on, particularly in the introduction, to talk about the uh, the goals or the outcomes of the HCP, putting emphasis on generalization and maintenance of skills. Mm -hmm. So, I just was wanted to explore a little bit the importance of, of of skills that maintain themselves to a certain extent or generalize or build on the previous ones for mm. people with limited repertoires so in your thinking about how you were designing his program of learning so his education his curriculum obviously this is focused on uh, object imitation but you, you mentioned here about the how that permeates other areas so you you know AC daily living appropriate toy play how did you shape and uh, create his curriculum so that one thing complemented another and that enabled better progress? So um, we looked at his IEP. Um, this learner was, before this program kind of was put in place, um, this learner was doing very segregated teaching in the sense that there was set amount of ITT time um, tabletop teaching. He had to do X number of sessions within the day, and then he was doing set number of uh, set amount of time spent on manding and working on his uh, self-help skills. However, when um, when I came back um, and I was looking at the program, it seemed quite separate. Like the skills that we were teaching were not helping each other like we were trying to teach him hand washing and we were trying to teach him uh you know how to uh, put his shoes on but these goals were not being targeted uh, the core the building steps towards these independent goals were not being targeted elsewhere and um i was constantly having to make a lot of program changes because we we taught a skill and then we would move on to the next target and he would not retain the previous target. So for example, we taught him to match uh, a cup to a cup uh, because he needs a cup to drink his water. It was a functional target, but the moment he mastered uh, matching a cup with a cup and we moved to matching plate to plate, he would not necessarily retain that skill of matching a cup. He would start erroring. So that was also kind of the profile where every skill that was being taught had to be maintained as part of his daily routine. So we were struck, we were needing program changes to uh, teach him hand washing. We were needing program changes to maintain his skills that were previously taught while new skills were being taught at the same time. So all of this kind of, you know, where you're constantly facing barriers after barriers. So we took a step back and like, let's look at the entire IEP and see how we can teach um, one particular skill but teach it in three different ways. So I need to teach him hand washing. What are the aspects of hand washing involved? It means he needs to turn the tap on, he needs to be able to pull um, the tissue out, he needs to be able to identify what a tissue is, and used all of that sort of uh, programming. So teaching matching tissues, being able to match um, a soap to a soap, being able to pump the soap, um, being able to rip the tissue out of um, a roll and we taught these separately intensively at the table and then we also taught it in a task analysis on, for his um, washing hands so it was just giving him additional practice for all the skills that he needed to become independent in um, hand washing and that's how we 
programmed his IEP and we then added this particular criteria where we did additional generalization probes and we also added a maintenance probe or a retention probe just to make sure that while we taught a new target he was still retaining what was taught last week for example because that that's what comes through for me studies is the level of intensity that's required and actually there's a sophisticated level of thinking isn't there around how you well I think you and I both will have seen over time uh, the type of uh, programs of learning where you see these kind of islands going on. So it's that kind of, you know, death by Abel's type scenario where you kind of have <laughs> yeah. you know, this, this is this and then this is this and this is this and it, it is never, never the twain shall mix. It's just, oh, we're doing this now. And you see these lovely tick program checklists, but there's no cohesion. And and I think yeah. to a certain degree that that is a symptom of uh, I guess over programming or um, not really understanding how skills are built, I suppose. So yeah, in any case, looking at what you're saying is that you're saying in your case studies there's this level of intensity. So so that that then it may it really piqued my interest when you were talking about then how you were taking data because you, you started talking about it then because in my head I'm thinking. You've got a young person that's clearly going to need loads of attention, loads of um, teaching, loads of reinforcement, like, you know, all of the time. Yeah. Actually, a really kind of sophisticated component analysis. So from a from a program change point of view is, you know, what's not being maintained in what area of his of his day, if you like. Um, mm -hmm. How did you overcome the level of intensity versus the necessity to take data that actually told you something and enable you to make changes? So I wasn't able to take trial by trial data because of the sheer intensity of the teaching involved. So we followed a first test or a uh, co-probe data because it just gave me enough information on whether he was making progress or not. And uh, what I asked for my tutors to do is kind of note the level of prompt he needed on the co-probe if he failed it. So that also gave me feedback if the prompting and the learning from the previous day was carrying over or not. So um, a successful prompt fade over time would look like when we started teaching the tra uh, target, he needed full prompts through the week and by towards the end of the week on the co-probe on the Friday morning, he, even though he was not successful in an independent response, he only needed a partial prompt. That still tells me that learning is taking place and the prompt fading that was being implemented by the tutor was being effective. We were also doing a first and last probe of the day um, just to get that information whether learning was then happening within the day as well. Sure and how did that inform your mastery criteria or your, um, no, this is a genuine question because I feel like I'm trying to imagine myself in that situation in terms of a data capture and, and, and then yeah. trying to understand, you know, is there is it data rich enough to help you make decisions? And I guess the only way you find that out is by taking more data or making changes. So I was just I'm just trying to get a picture on how how you landed there. Yes, you got the intensity, but did did it work? Yeah. Did your cold probe scenario work? Did your taking note of the small incremental changes over time did you see patterns did you see positive trends yes yes we did see that and you can see that if you look into the figure section and you look at um, figure number two now a program at glance um, um, is a system that we follow at beyond autism whereby against each iep goal we um, key workers at um, the end of each teaching week would make a note um, using a traffic light system of how a particular learner is making progress against an IEP goal. And as you can see, um, for this particular learner uh, on his imitation target, he was uh, in red on um, one of the weeks. And then I went in and observed, I made the program change. And as you can see over time, he's gone through the traffic light system and we can see consistently he's making progress against his IEP goal. And he in fact eventually even mastered the IEP goal. Um, and that was one of the ways I kind of used um, 
a simple traffic light system um, to ensure that I was able to keep track of uh, whether he was making progress or not. Um, and um, I would then further analyze the um, daily co-probe data as well, go back, check in with the tutor, um, how effective was the prompt fading, was she able to fade prompts? And, you know, just having that conversation as well with the tutor kind of helped uh, make decisions whether further changes were required or we need to stick through this and you know give it enough time give the program change enough time for him to be able to learn and gain that target gain that skill sometimes i i find that making changes too early too soon can almost be detrimental i was having a conversation not so long ago about how you often come across uh, or start working with learners that um you know as as kind of the behavior analyst that there's like a core thing core skill core learning to learn skill that really needs a lot of attention a lot of intensity but in the back of your mind you're just thinking it's gonna be boring how how do we keep the learner interested how do we keep the staff levels energy high to ensure the kind of the value of new behavior i guess is really imparted to the learner and, and this is how i wanted to really sort of look now towards your method because quite early on in your method you start talking about contact with reinforcement so i just what i just wanted to if you now to if you don't mind like to start talking about your journey through your method how, how you how you started how you maintained how you finished uh, what decisions you needed to make around reinforcement schedules and, uh, and so on um, with this particular learner, the challenge was largely retaining his attention and his motivation in the learning environment because um, it sort of uh, the barriers was not only self-stimulatory behavior um, such as tapping or, uh, you know, kind of banging his chin, but the, uh, the challenge or the barrier was also getting a response um, from the learner. So the tutor uh, could have simply presented the instruction and you may have a learner who's either engaging in self-simulatory behavior that serves an escape function or is then completely not responding and looking away. And that looking away is where we began. We began by ensuring that before the tutor presented the instruction, the learner was looking at the tutor. For this, we did have to use um, a very high rate of uh, reinforcement. We almost started at an FR1. So every response was reinforced with a small amount of edible. Um, and as uh, learning progressed, we used differential reinforcement for um, you know, less prompted responses essentially, because that, with this learner, the focus was um, on reducing the prompts gradually while ensuring that we still had him responding within that trial and allowing that teaching trial to be completed or you know so that we're not interrupted by self-stimulatory behaviors or other escape behaviors. And there was something here about um, prompt hierarchies as well, how, how you had to kind of flip that on its head to a certain degree. Yeah, so um, as you know in 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 behavior analysis and largely in errorless teaching procedures. Um, the prompting is largely guided by the learner. The, the tutor um, makes the decision on the most appropriate uh, appropriate prompt level, but the general rule would be to go least intrusive because you don't want to over prompt and you don't want to be too intrusive. However, with this learner, we, we did notice that if the prompts did not come in quick enough, it, he would ever or he would not respond at all. And we did not want that situation happening where we then had to repeatedly go into another error correction procedure. So the focus was on preventing an error and getting a response that could be reinforced. So we started with a very intrusive full prompt and gradually over the teaching trials, we faded the prompt into partial prompt and then into almost a minimal prompt and sometimes even a gestural till we were able to get independent responses from this learner. Hmm. And I see later <coughs> on you start talking about a time delay on, on most of these prompting yeah. on the final probe test trial of the errorless teaching procedure. So yeah. did that did that look like 
your when you did your cold probe you were you were still conscious of the learner contacting reinforcement but also giving them a chance to, to respond on the basis of the sd and then and then differentially reinforce yes. that yes perfect that's what so um, if you look at the teaching trials so on the core probe, we would we present the instruction. For example, if the target was to um, pull the tissue from a row, we present the instruction and say, "Hey, can you do this?" And we would be ready to prompt, but not necessarily prompting straight away. This was on the core probe. If the error happened, then we would go into an error correction procedure. In errorless teaching, we were ready to prompt on the teaching trial. So we would present the instruction prompt, represent the instruction prompt again, and over time, we would then add in that time delay and give that one second and then another two seconds to give him the time to respond independently, but be ready to prompt so that an error didn't occur. Got you. Which meant a lot of training and the tutor being very, very spot on and, um, you know, almost their hands are there ready, but not necessarily going in and allowing <laughs> that chance for an independent Sounds response. Sounds like a, an integrity nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it was difficult. It took it took a while for the tutor to get the procedure right, but it involved a lot of role playing at the end of the school day. <laughs> Okay. All right, Jack, well, we're going to pause there. Uh, uh, during our uh, podcast, we're looking at keywords so that people, we know that people have listened. So if you could tell us your first keyword, that'd be really useful. Imitation. Oh, there we go. Excellent. <laughs> first word then, imitation. Okay. So I'm going to take us a little bit left field now, I think, but it, it is related. It's not like totally off the point. So I read this and recognise it as a component of a teaching programme because it was totally necessary. I think sometimes some of the um, issues that we encounter as a field is if you read this cold and don't understand the full picture, it just it sounds very much about like procedures and treatments and intensity and, and intrusiveness of prompts and so forth. So let's take us back to the reasons why we were doing this and this is around prerequisites it's about building repertoires and it's about giving this young person a better quality of life right yeah so we're trying to give them tools essentially so my question is well there's two questions in fact the first one is given that there was so much attention having to be given to the to the to the methodology of how you were teaching the these skills that admittedly were there to be maintained and generalized in other areas of his life did you find that the attention needed to be given to the complexities of the teaching procedures in some way uh were self-serving in in their complexity and and their ability to produce the target skill and therefore become more reinforceable for you or did you were you able to kind of keep probably i know the answer to this rhetorically but just explain to people you can get so bogged down in the technicalities of how you teach something and change behavior and reinforce new things that the thing itself becomes almost obsessional you're like oh i really need to make this as as uh, perfect as possible how how did you maintain a level of um keeping your eye on the prize, the horizon of, uh, of this, the outcome of this with this for yourself, for the team, um, for the data. I mean, t tell us about the perspective you were able to generate and maintain for, for staff and teaching. Um, it was actually quite child-led because I was taking my cues from the child. If he was learning, that was telling me, yes, this procedure is right. There, it wasn't picture perfect. Of course, there were targets later on that we um, had difficulties teaching him despite this successful procedure because the fine motor and the cross motor um, physical aspect of his skills just didn't support learning those particular targets um, that we put in place. So we would go back to the drawing board, look at how to further simplify it, uh, speak to the uh, OT, um, you know, identify what we can teach um, as a prerequisite to this particular prerequisite skill. So it was a lot of breaking down 
and identifying the ultimate terminal goal. The terminal goal was, for example, for him to be able to put his shoes on, for him to be able to wash his hands as independently as possible, and identifying things that we could teach more intensively, take, you know, and teach simultaneously within the chain. And that was kind of the ultimate goal. The life, the goal was, how can I make mom's life a little bit easier at home, just so that she doesn't have to always put her shoes on, she doesn't have to always get him to wash his hands. Even these little bits make, uh, you know, it's social validity in the end. Um, what did mom need? Mom needed him to be a little bit more independent at home. And that was kind of the driving force. And that's how his entire IEP, even till date, is focused on helping build these um, components, essentially. Okay, so then, did, did, it's like a really crazy question because you've, you've demonstrated a case study about a thing, right, about object imitation. Did the approach that you took, bear in mind, you've already identified the reasons why you were thinking about doing this. It was daily living skills, it was AAC, it was toy play. It, it was all the things that you would hope children would develop over time as they get a little bit older and, and can start looking after themselves a little bit more. So we, we get the social validity. Did, did this kind of um, building blocks, ground up type, prerequisite, maintenance through general, generalization through maintenance, did, did, that, did it work? Did you see cumulative acquisition increase, for example? Yes, we did. We did. And even till date, um, his imitation skills have consistently improved. We've kind of maintained this teaching procedure. Um, he is now learning to um, go to the shops and we are using the shopping event to teach a number of other skills around imitation, being able to pick up items from an aisle and pop it in the in the shopping basket, um, to pick up a shopping basket. Because all of this for this particular learner with all the gross motor difficulties involved and fine motor difficulties involved for this learner, um, it the imitation became a cornerstone essentially for everything that he's gonna do, um, you know, moving on in life. He's 10 years now. Um, all his future curriculum planning will be focused on increasing in independence. And that's where it kind of was taking the focus was let's get this uh, learner to be able to imitate with less and less prompts. And now we've moved his entire IEP and teaching into um, an event-based um, natural environment teaching context. And he's not needing as much of tabletop teaching anymore. Really was like a manifestation of, of the importance of cusp behaviors, right? So you, you, you opened so many new doors for this young man on the basis of a really kind of intensive period of time where you were really smart with how you approached it. You, you thought, well, actually, what what is the core area for development here? What are the things, what's the thing that's gonna open the most doors? Did, did, mm -hmm. it, um, did it help with the AAC? Because there's some conflicting research out there, isn't there, around teaching imitation skills before you teach AAC for him did it did it make it did it make the difference do you say yes it did the reason I spoke about the AAC in the case study was something that we struggled with was the isolating of the finger to be able to point and scroll and that was one of the reasons we used um, imitation as to be able to point on a specific area within the um, AAC and that's what we worked on as, a, as well as one of his imitation targets was to simply isolate the index finger and point to an area within the um, AAC screen. And now he can scroll up, he can scroll down. He's now learning to go into folders for specific categories. So when he wants food, he'll touch food and then go and make further requests. We're still having to work on the discrimination aspect of the, um, uh, you know, images and uh, using pictures versus icons but you know there's always something to work on right because i mean there's so many layers that isn't there you can analyze it in so many different ways I and mean, we're kind of looking at top level aren't we about the, you know they were right about cusp behaviors let's uh, let's remember that the, the idea about skills maintaining themselves through exactly. a blanket approach to understanding someone's key areas for development but it, i mean yeah. this is so interesting isn't it because you get you get this i feel like we get lots of these contradictions somehow in in behavior analysis you have high intensity learning mm. or 
very basic, you know, you know, identify an index finger. But everything that goes into that is insane. Like there's so many hours of the imitation of that point to point correspondence, I suppose you could almost, you know, quite have a coex going on. But you take my point around point to point correspondence, literally with the finger. Um, and then the discriminatory stimulus piece that comes in for what sounds like, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, and I, I may be, did you have to apply the same level of intensity then to what you just described going into folders and scrolling and uh, okay, we've got some, you've got some, some discrimination, discrimination issues at the moment, but, but how did you see much of like the untrained step in, in his repertoire, having done some of the more uh, intensive basic skills? Yes. So um, once we worked on him being able to scroll up and down the screen uh, under imitation, we found that when we were um, teach, when there were manned opportunities and manding occurring, we needed to focus less on that particular response of scrolling, and we could focus on the discrimination that we he was also struggling with. Because ACs, when we talk about ACs, there's so much involved in the use of it. You have all of these prerequisites, being able to manage the device, being able to carry the device. Some of our learners struggle to even simply carry the device. So we have targets where learners are required to hold it and, you know, be actually for it to be functional for, for them to be their voice. So all of that kind of came into the programming as well. And because that particular target was related directly to his need to have, you know, to have a biscuit or his raisins, we needed less intensive teaching because there was so much motivation involved and the reward was so intrinsic in the process. Now we didn't have to use additional rewards. It, it was self-maintaining, as you've said, um, because he was using it all the time. Yeah, and, and it's just, you know, it really does bring to light, doesn't it, these issues that we sometimes <coughs> experience where we will observe learners in other settings and their only opportunity for communication is at set points in the day. Yeah. And whereas what you're saying, go back to the touch communication pieces, if you want to communicate, just to communicate, it doesn't need to be at snack time or it doesn't need to be at the end of the day mm -hmm. or the beginning of the day. Yeah. And so it, it follows the MO. So which drives me insane, like when you go into these different settings, it's just when food is around, for example, because it, what if the kid's not hungry? Or what if it isn't a thing? And there's so many times where the target is them tolerating it's finished or not available as opposed to actually communicating for what they want. And it, it just... Mm feels like there's such um, a positive opportunity to teach something that requires so much repetition, intervention, reinforcement, the correct level of prompting, um, a real thinking about how that the, the skill on a Monday morning at nine o'clock is also the skill that's worked on at 9.05 and 9.10 and onwards because it, it's integrated into other things and so therefore their breadth and balance is the core skill across all curriculum areas and maintains a, a social communication. So you start even talking about that, the intensity is really obvious. So going on to um, your kind of discussion piece and the conclusion at the end, um, you highlight things around, you've said that the, the learner learn benefit from the intervention is observed across the targets with the IP and goal of object, object limitations but other learning to learn skills but you do also comment that the most least prompting can create prompt dependency it doesn't sound as though this happened for this learner uh, from how you've discussed it you know outside of the case study so how did you avoid that I mean if you, you imagine you if to present it's almost like a supervision session isn't it you present this dichotomy of learning these access <coughs> how do you do it fully prompt okay but then aren't you then just reinforcing the fully prompted response so, so how did you build that through how did you make a difference there it was a lot it was the program planning that was systematically each step of prompt each response that was prompted was determined by the level of prompt required in the previous step so uh, it was entirely, there wasn't a set criteria that, oh, if he responds X number of times, um, um, 
fully prompted, then we fake the prompt. It was quite dynamic and it was very much uh, responding to the learner in the moment. It was training the tutors to think, does he need the full prompt right now? Is he likely to error? The focus was to prevent the error. For preventing the error, a full prompt was necessary. Okay, go on, provide a full prompt. Over time, through analysis of the cold probe data and the level of prompt needed on the cold probe, that kind of determined the first prompt that should be attempted. So if on the Monday, Tuesday, he on the cold probe, he needed a partial prompt um, following an error, uh, he then would then, the criteria almost, or the first prompt level to be attempted was a partial prompt. Then at that point, don't go in with the full prompt, read the data and then decide the most appropriate prompt level. Go by what was done previously and that should tell you your most appropriate prompt level. So it's almost kind of giving the tutor that ownership on and almost teaching the tutor to dynamically um, decide the appropriate prompt level. But again, focus being prevent the errors largely. You said at the top of the conversation actually that it was around um, getting the learner to respond which I suppose in the grand scheme of things was recognising the, recognizing the discriminatory stimulus, right? I mean, knowing that yeah. it was there. So you established that kind of learner-teacher relationship on the basis of a full problem. Would it be fair to say that, that that's kind of how you managed it to begin with? Where to you begin with, yeah. And so... It, it was necessary <clears throat> at that point because the history had been such that we were having such a high rate of errors um, and sometimes often non-responding as well because the learner would simply look away. He, one second he is attending and just as the tutor would come in with the instruction for the target, we would have the learner looking away because that moment and the motivation has dropped. So the focus was to maintain that motivation and keep the child responding while also preventing the error. So it was quite heavily prompted at the beginning and once we had that fluency in responding coming then we faded the prompts out um, again it's not what I would typically do my go-to for any learner would be a least intrusive prompt but that had not been effective we tried a different ways we tried different um, sizes of materials we tried looking at maybe changing the location where we were teaching it and when all of that was not successful we tried this particular approach where we looked at giving a more intensive and very um, reward heavy uh, procedure but the data said it worked mm. yeah right and and you, you hit that cusp and, and now things change and, and so just to double check so i'm not sure i asked the question very well earlier do, do you now see a, a faster acquisition now for this young man so if he's learning something new does he learn it faster now than he used to when or do you have to go through the same procedures each time no now that we're teaching more in the natural environment and in the context of his functional living activities we're seeing less need for this intensive tabletop teaching um we pretty much about 80 percent of his iep now is um based on his daily routine um and we've not needed this level of intensive teaching anymore and then for, and for the listener like what time scale are we talking about here so from from when you made your first changes to today, how long has that been? It's been about a year and a half, but again, it reflects all the other barriers that we've had to work through. We're not seeing as much self-stimulatory behaviors that, um, when we do any tabletop learning. Um, he is beginning to participate in group lessons as well. Um, still on doing three group lessons, but that tolerance to be in a group is also there. So, you know, it's it, it's an impact that you're seeing across a number of other teaching areas. It's not just within imitation, but what being able to imitate has led to um, how it has impacted his learning in other areas as well. Being yes, able to communicate and, you know, being able to be with peers and take turns. I don't have to now teach him to put the connect for coin in the game he's able to do that now mm. otherwise previously i would have had to even break that down and add that as a target first 
Sure. Which, well, which makes teaching and the, and the prospect of a, uh, of progress and attainment really daunting, doesn't it? Because you just think, gosh, um, everything has to be taught. So again, it kind of it it, it backs that position of, of going down the prerequisite skills really early. And, mm -hmm. and the reason why the prompting thing is so interesting, and, and why I love the fact that you've you've identified it as a potential issue, and and therefore <laughs> I think. You're not necessarily advocating for most to least. You're talking about data leading and child, the child actually leading, in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, we did a podcast a, a year or two ago, maybe, um, with Dr. Merrill Winston, when he was he was really riffing on this idea of people can do things with prompts and how they can't do it at all if they're doing it with prompts. Like it, 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 you know, they are being prompted yeah. to do it. So it's really great to hear. So okay, look, second question. Back to you know when I said two questions uh, was the the social significance the 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 impact for parents how is it at home now um he's still putting the velcro on his shoes on he's learned to use his index finger to you know kind of put his leg through his foot through the shoe it's very simple things being able to isolate that index finger to you know pop your heel into the shoe Hmm. And a lot of our kid, a lot of the children that we work with struggle with something as simple as that. And you know, he's um, he can wear, he can put a strap on. He still needs some help with getting the you know right and left combination right and so on. But the fact that he can do that, it's that one little bit that he can do independently gives um, parents that sort of satisfaction that oh. He's learning. He's done something by himself, especially when you have learners who have such complex needs and need so much support at home. Mm. You know, but every little like helps. <laughs> that's right. But it also sounds like his life's improved. Like he, he seems like he, from how you're describing him, because I don't know the child you're talking about, but he, he sounds like he's accessing so much more, participating so much more, mm -hmm. more opportunities and so on, more success. OK, Jaffa, we'll pause there for just a second again and we could have your second keyword, please. Um. Prompting. <laughs> you know, people could guess the words here, right? <laughs> oh, sorry. Maybe then I should be. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Imitation is best word. Prompting the second. Fantastic. No problem at all. I'm just joking. Okay. Uh, last little section. I just wondered, given how much attention you had to give to it and um, how much work went into it, is there anything you might have done differently? Now, now you're reflecting on it. How how have you reflected? You know, obviously we kind of promote this idea of being reflective practitioners and um, looking at our data and making behavior analysis hallmark, isn't it? About how you can um, make those differences. How would you have made those differences differently, maybe? One, I would have chosen the targets a little bit more, keeping in line with what he was going to do two, three years down the line. Like when I think back, um, imitating pouring a kettle at that point was not necessarily as important in his day-to-day -day life. Yes, we moved on and taught other targets that were more functional, like ripping the tissue off, um, you know, uh, using uh, pressing the button on the microwave to open the microwave and so on. But again, just kind of going back and when selecting targets, and this is something within the world of ABA and practice, we need to go back and think, does the child need to match the picture of a toilet to another toilet? How is he going to be using that ever? Does he need to match a picture of a tree to another tree? How functional is it going to be for this learner five years down the line? Yes, of course, you will have learners who are more academically inclined, who are more, if you think of a VB map, who are in level two and level three. Yes, for that cohort, matching a picture of a tree to a tree is very important because that will ensure that they're able to label a tree, talk about a tree, get those interverbals later on in life. But if you have learners who have such complex needs where their ability to perform day-to-day -day activities is so dependent on a caregiver, then we need to question why does he need to learn to match a tree to a tree? And that has kind of um, shaped how I plan my IEPs now, especially for this early learner cohort. Um, every IEP I do now is following this system whereby I look at what skills they're going to need three or four years down the line 
and how can I start working on those prerequisites in imitation or matching and you know looking at oh is he gonna I want him to you know um, does mum want him to make a snack um, down the road yeah okay let's look how we can get him into the kitchen and get him you know matching a chopping board match you know locating and identifying um, things that he's going to use in it in his everyday life and then I don't have to plan and program for maintenance because the skills will maintain themselves. In a way it's quite lucky that his propensity to not maintain skills over time when you said earlier when you, that you teach him something and then you oh cool that's master and you go to teach him something else and you lost the previous thing it's in a way quite lucky that happened for this learner not least because you've got to this space now where he's able to um start doing some of that some of those untrained steps so you talked about the AAC use and how he was kind of making um decisions for himself actually given given what was in front of him mm -hmm. uh, but quite easily you could have had a learner that didn't lose skills from from thing to thing, target mm. to target. And actually you'd have been one could be drawn into this scenario where you think, oh no, it's cool, we're learning new stuff and we're getting more and more on the target sheet as mastered and that's fantastic. But then all of a sudden this child's got a hundred things he can match to sample, but none of them are related and actually doesn't mean anything for the next step. Um, yeah, it's an interesting lesson, I think. I think there's so much we have to consider, isn't there? Yeah. From We always talk about the learner being right, and we are, but the, more, the longer and longer I'm in this field, the more and more I'm really drawn to the ethics of it, because I think without it, you get into this really bizarre scenario sometimes, like the one we just described. I have taught this young man, or this young man has learned 500 new tax, say, or, I mean, it's the old low-vast model, isn't it? <clears throat> mm. hundreds and hundreds of labels or tax uh, or receptive receptive labels or whatever the terminology was and yet they can do nothing with it there's, there's just no skills it's just yeah. simply that's a ball that's a cup and so on yeah all right good thanks for that Jeff it's a really interesting uh, conversation and actually I'd urge people to read the case study because there's lots of it, we've kind of broadly gone through the the, <laughs> the the beginning to end, but you're very more, you're much more specific in a case study. Uh, yeah. And we've we've talked about other things that are kind of in offshoots, which I, I found to be like a really interesting conversation. So thanks so much for that. Um, when we're done, uh, it'll be uploaded soon. There'll be there'll be your case study itself. The references will be up there as well. Um, so it just remains for me to say thank you very much, Jalpa, and uh, see you next time. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking to you, Andy.